Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be catching up with Martin Guggio, the elderly protester who had his skull busted by the Buffalo Police Department last summer during the Black Lives Matter protests. We're going to be talking about Illinois' trailblazing elimination of cash bail and the South Dakota Attorney General under fire for his actions during and after a fatal car accident. During segment two, we'll be exploring part one of our look at the Ohio Civil Protection Order regime, including what are the different kinds of protection orders that can be issued in the state of Ohio, and what is the distinction between each type. To make sure that you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Look to the law office of BrianJones.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. So Erica, did you see in the news this week that the grand jury in Buffalo declined to indict the officers who pushed Martin Gugino, Gugino, uh, three, two, one. So Erica, did you see in the news with three, two, take three. Erica, did you see in the news this week that the grand jury declined to indict the officers who violently shoved Martin Gugino on June 4 last year and that he has now filed a civil rights action against those officers and the city for their actions? I did see that and it is you know, just heartbreaking and, and shocking. Um, it's hard to forget the sound of his head hitting the pavement and really just the lack of care that the officers had not even calling for help after they knew that he was subdued. So can you just remind us of the whole situation and how he came in contact with law enforcement to begin with? So Mr. Gugino is a Catholic social justice activist who was knocked to the ground and suffered a broken skull and a variety of other extensive injuries, ultimately landing him in the intensive care unit last summer. He was, he was part of the group of elderly people who came out after police became violent against Black Lives Matter protesters and the, the mothers and the grandparents who stood in between the police and the Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, he was advocating for the First Amendment rights of those protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters. Now, just last week, the grand jury declined to indict the officers who assaulted him. And as we saw in the video, uh, left him bleeding on the pavement um, after he suffered that broken skull and, and other injuries. Uh, the officers just stepped over him. Uh, and kept walking and never even bothered to call for any medical attention, let alone providing any medical attention after they attacked him. Uh, ultimately, it was the press that called, uh, called for medical attention for him. Now, we don't know whether the prosecutor intentionally tanked the case or whether actual evidence was presented and the grand jury just, de just declined to file charges in this. Um, hopefully, very similar to the Breonna Taylor situation, one of the grand jurors will uh, have the, the, uh, 
the bravery to come out and, and tell us what happened. Uh, you may recall the Buffalo PD uh, police department made a big show of having all of its riot team, uh, quote unquote, resign as the result of the officers who assaulted Mr. Gugino, uh were put on administrative leave. So the officers that, that engaged in the assault were put on administrative leave and everybody else said, well, fine, we quit too. Um, kind of a, you know, I'm going to take my ball and go home mentality. This is a stark and honestly terrifying reminder that the thin blue line um, and the the you know conspiracy and collaboration of police officers is alive and well regardless of the moral cost it reaps on our society uh, particularly in buffalo but honestly across the united states well i mean it is it is scary and 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 it's a it's amazing that this can even happen. I can't believe that he didn't get anything out of that, that suit. So can you just tell us, for those of us that don't know the difference between all these different types of suits, how is the civil suit different from the suits that are filed by individuals that are under arrest? So Mr. Gugino has now filed a civil rights action under the United States Code 42, uh, section 1983. Um, so under that code section, uh, any citizen can sue the government for violating their constitutional rights. And in Mr. Gugino's case, we're talking about freedom of speech, peaceable assembly, petitioning the government for redress of grievance, movement, unreasonable seizure, and freedom from the unlawful use of force um, and due process of law. Uh, peaceable assembly and redress grievance are both protest rights that are set forth very clearly and explicitly in the First Amendment. Um, and then there's a variety of Fourth Amendment rights for the injuries that he suffered as the result of this assault. Now, the suit also raises the constitutional issue of the creation of a week-long curfew and its selective enforcement against those peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters. Uh, you know, what, what we see is that the curfew was enforced against Black Lives Matter, but has not been enforced against you know, the Boogaloo Boys um, and, and those, uh, those right-wing protest groups. Um, there are also a variety of civil rights that are being exercised more and more frequently by peaceful protesters. Um, and those who were assaulted during the Black Lives Matter protests um, have also retained counsel and are filing suits uh, similar to Mr. Gugino. Um, these are the same issues that are arising and are being raised as defenses by the Capitol insurrectionists. So the, the violence that we saw in the Capitol insurrection um, is is being used uh, is using these same defenses uh, against their criminal charges. You know, notice these people are being charged criminally. Mr. Gugino was never charged criminally. Uh, his assailant was investigated but not charged. Um, but he is now suing for a violation of those rights. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Do you see a lot of people suing for their rights like this? Or do most people just not think about it? Well, I think I think Erica. Most people just don't think about it. Most people think that you know the government is going to have its boot on my neck, both 
metaphorically and uh, literally, and there's nothing that they can do about it. And that's part of the reason why we're doing this show is to make sure that to get word out to as many people as possible. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic because we do always cover these injustices and, you know, sometimes people don't take action to protect their rights and sometimes they do. And I think it's great to see the examples of what happens in these different situations. So for example, in this case, he obviously had some rights taken away and he wasn't doing anything wrong and he was treated very poorly and could have possibly died from that kind of a head injury. But is he, you know, and I'm sure that the medical bills were huge. So will he at least be able to recover the money spent on medical? So Mr. Gugino's uh, civil suit does specifically seek restitution payment for his stay in the ICU. Um, He had several months of inpatient rehabilitation at a hospital. I think you're right, Erica, that his his medical bills are certainly in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars at this point. Um, He has also sought financial compensation for his permanent hearing loss, uh, balance issues, and inability to uh, walk without assistance following the assault. Uh, Now, his damages can be collected via this civil suit. However, people also have the option of getting their medical expenses paid through uh, a claims action or like the Court of Claims in Ohio um, as a suit against the city itself. Now, Mr. Gugino uh, has sued not only the police officers, but also the mayor and a variety of city officials because he's not just seeking financial damages. His attorneys are also seeking injunctions and court orders that would force the city to respond, force the police department to respond differently to peaceful protests in the future. So we applaud him and his attorneys for not only trying to uh, punish the city through the financial sanctions, um, you know, obviously making him whole through the financial sanctions, but also trying to make change in the system through these injunctive remedies. I feel like it's the opportunity cost as well. And he's, he's during rehab and just because he's, he's not able to have his balance and his hearing, he could be losing out on opportunity with work and, you know, just quality of life really with just family and in general. I think Mr. I think Mr. Gugino has suffered greatly at the hands of the Buffalo Police Department, and I, I really I hope that he receives justice through this civil remedy. Your true justice would be these officers being held to the exact same standard that any other normal citizen would be held to. But as we know, Erica, the police are above the law and want to keep themselves in that uh, rarefied position. Another location that uh, deserves applause right now, and Erica, did you see this week, Illinois has become the first state in the union to eliminate cash bail under a new law? 
I saw that. That is amazing. Now, where I'm from, we don't have bail hearings. So if you wouldn't mind, just for me and everyone else reminding us, what is cash bail? What's the purpose of that? So I want to first give a little distinction because there's a couple of terms that are used interchangeably. There's bond and there's bail. So bail is the cash payment paid by the accused or someone on their behalf to the court. Bond is a bondsman's pledge to make good on bail if the defendant doesn't appear before the court. Um, Bail and bond are frequently used interchangeably, but they do refer to different ways of accomplishing the same thing, which is, and to get directly to your question, Erica, creating collateral held by the court as an incentive to get people to show up in court. Now, in order to avoid being held in custody while awaiting for your case to get resolved, a defendant pays uh, either a portion or the full amount of bail to the court um, or works with a bondsman to pay a portion of that bail amount to the bondsman who then makes a promise to pay the remaining amount. Now, Erica, if you have absolutely no assets and you have uh, no ability to pay $100,000, even if that amount is, is dropped on your head as a debt that you owe to the court, is it going to make a difference to you and keep you coming to court if you owe that money? In my opinion, the answer is, is absolutely not. If you're never going to have $100,000 anyways, what does $100,000 that you owe to the court mean at, at, at that point? You know, it doesn't serve its purpose of keeping people coming back to court. If somebody is going to skip out on their court appointment, if they're going to flee the jurisdiction, they're going to do so whether they owe the court a million dollars or a hundred million dollars. Because at the end of the day, they're not fleeing because the amount of bail was too low to incentivize them to come back to court. They're fleeing the jurisdiction for some other reason. They are scared of the consequences that they may be facing, whether they are guilty or not guilty of the offense they are accused of. Yeah, I mean, and you have to figure that whether they are, whether they're not, if they're sitting in jail, they are losing out on a lot of things and missing work. And the word is getting out, whether they're guilty or not, that this thing happened and they're sitting in jail and, um, relationships are being broken. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it's interesting because if you get out on bail, you're still able to, to some degree, keep up with your life while you're waiting for trial. So can you give us some of the reasons why there's a movement against bail? Well, I think you've hit on uh, several of those right there. It's, it's much easier to prepare your defense. Uh, your family isn't torn apart by having uh, one of the breadwinners uh, removed from the financial equation. You know, it's pretty clear in America these days, um, even to reach a middle-class standard, both 
you know, both parts of, of most couples have to work in, in order to have a livable wage. So when you remove 50% of, of a family's income from the equation, uh, it, it makes it almost impossible to maintain housing, uh, which uproots children and moves them out of, of their school system. Um, it creates housing instability. It creates uh, nourishment instability. So you know, having people locked up while they are innocent because they have not been convicted of a crime yet uh, is, is a massive uh, damage to our society as a whole. And cash bail has long been considered a poor people's tax um, because those who don't have the money to post cash bail languish in cells for weeks, months, or even in some cases years awaiting trial, racking up jail fees, losing their jobs, losing their car, losing their homes, um, potentially losing custody of their children, all of which, once they are in fact exonerated, they have to work that much harder to put back together. Cash bail has a disproportionate impact on people of color and people of limited economic means. Because if you can't come up with the full payment, you've got to pay 10% to a bondsman. And if you can't afford to pay 10% to a bondsman, then you, you have to sit in jail. And that 10% is never refundable, even if you're innocent, even if you're completely exonerated, you could be out you know, and and people who are wealthy, you know, you put, you put a million dollar bail on somebody that makes $10 million a year. And they say, "Hmm, okay, here you go, court, here's my million dollars. And if they're exonerated, if they're found not guilty, they get their million dollars back. But you do that to a person that doesn't have financial means and they're stuck in jail because who even, you know, at that point has $100,000 to come up with, um, you know, to pay a bondsman, the 10% that they're, they're entitled to for posting the bond. So cash bail in Illinois, um, you know, having it phased out, having it go away is, is a huge win for criminal justice reform. I mean, I agree with you. And I, I really feel for the for those people that don't have the money. Um, and I'm glad that this is going away uh, for the people of Illinois. Okay, three, two, one. Now, the big question now is, what are they going to do if there aren't fines imposed? How are they going to get these people to show up? Well, the funny thing is, Erica, that bail doesn't really have anything to do with people showing up. You know, missing a court date is substantially different from fleeing a jurisdiction. And what a 2019 study shows is that people who miss court dates miss them at about the same rate that they miss medical appointments. And they miss them for a lot of the same reasons. Uh, Of those missed court dates, according to this study, 26% were due to forgetting the date. Oops, I forgot my appointment. Um, Or I wrote the wrong date down. 52% 52% were the result of a lack of childcare or transportation. Again, being poor causes you more problems. It's expensive to be poor. Um, and 15% were due to intentional avoidance of court. Um, 7% were uncategorized, but that includes deportations. So, you know, out of uh, 
gosh, out of seven, you know, at least 70% of people show up to court up to as, as much as 85% show up to court for all of their court dates. And even among that small percentage, only 15% intentionally missed their court date. Now, from my experience, Erica, when I was a public defender, what I would tell you is that the vast majority of those people who miss their court dates intentionally miss because they're going to fail a drug test. And if you're going to come in and fail a drug test and know that you're going to be incarcerated and then lose your job, lose your car, lose your kids, lose your house, that, 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 that all the dominoes start falling. Um, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, a frightening situation. And so this is a next level of reform is that these you know, minor violations of bond conditions need to be rolled back um, and, you know, really limited as far as what puts somebody in jail. But to answer your question directly, Erica, what is going to make sure people show up to court pretrial supervision, making sure that they check in with their probation officer on a regular basis by phone? Um, in person if necessary, but really it's not. You know, we can do video, um, you know, we can do phone calls to make sure that people are, you know, doing what they're saying they're going to be doing, being where they're saying they're going to be, um, you know, and aware of their dates as we saw. Uh, it looks like, you know, a quarter, more than a quarter of people who miss court dates miss it just because they had the wrong date. We can put GPS monitors on people so that we can track where they are. Um, and Erica, you know, quality attorneys are going to tell their client, don't miss court because it reduces the chance that you're going to get probation if you are convicted of something. It can get you charged with a new offense called failure to appear um, if, you, if you miss your court dates. So you know, there are a variety of other sticks, so to speak, um, and you know, to some degree, carrots to make sure that people show up to court. Um, what we find from behavioral studies time and time again is that carrots are substantially more effective than sticks. So I, for one, would like to see the criminal injustice system look more towards a carrot uh, approach to making sure that people show up and a little bit less towards the stick. I mean, that makes sense. And you know, honestly, that's the best way to get results in a lot of different situations. So I'm, I'm happy that they are moving toward the carrot and the stick. So Erica, last but certainly not least, did you see the news coming out of South Dakota where the attorney general there is under fire and being pressured to resign for his involvement in a fatal hit and run car accident in September of last year. Well, that's really, really shocking. And I did hear a little bit about this and uh, you know, some of the details are definitely eyebrow raising, let's say. <laughs> um, can you, exactly, um, can you just review the situation and, and what he said happened and, and what we think really happened? Yeah, for those listeners that aren't aware, Attorney General Ravensborg claims that he was uh, driving home totally sober from a Republican Party fundraiser and that at 1030 at night, 
on September 12, 2020, his car hit a large object in the dark. Now, he claims he thought he hit a deer, and he claims that he searched along the side of the road using his cell phone as a flashlight. He claims he wasn't drinking, and there was no drug or alcohol testing ever conducted in this case. Now, he called the sheriff. Sheriff came out to the scene, and, and allegedly the two of them searched and found no evidence of anything or anyone in the ditch. Nothing was amiss. Now, the next day, for some strange reason, he returned to the location and brought his staff with him and located the body of the decedent in this case, a local resident who experienced a vehicle breakdown the night before. And unfortunately, that vehicle breakdown led to his death. Local authorities never notified the victim's family of his death for another 24 hours. And there is significant suspicion about the integrity of the investigation in light of the fact that Attorney General Ravensborg brought his own people out to this scene before law enforcement became involved. Now, he was ultimately charged with operating a motor vehicle while using an electronic device, illegal lane change, and careless driving. His exposure for killing a citizen of his state, 30 days in jail and a $500 fine for each of those charges. Wow. I mean, I feel like that's an awful lot. And it's, it sounds like so many other situations where politicians do something really horrible and somebody dies and then it gets covered up. Um, it feels like history repeats itself over and over. So can you tell me why has the public perception of the case changed recently? So once again, the fourth estate has come to our rescue. Uh, the media requested and received access to uh, Attorney General Ravensborg's interrogation. And what was revealed is, is honestly shocking. He can't keep his story straight. And when he's pressed on various aspects of his story, it doesn't align with the evidence at the scene. For example, the attorney general claims he never knew that he hit a person, yet the victim's reading glasses were found inside his vehicle, meaning the victim's face hit his car so hard that the eyeglasses went into the vehicle. Investigators also doubted his quote unquote search of a flashlight in the area um, and questioned how no sound alerted him to the victim who was bleeding out over several hours in the ditch. Now the family has doubts about the integrity of the investigation and the fact that an outside agency wasn't immediately called to the scene is highly suspicious in light of the fact that it's a law enforcement officer engaged in the accident. Now, the videos of his interrogation are demonstrative of a quite artful response by an experienced law enforcement officer trained in the tactics and how to respond to um, advanced interrogation techniques. The optics of him using his experience and dodging the questions over and over again is another story, honestly, for another day. 
But um, suffice to say, the public has turned on the AG and are asking for him to be, be held accountable, possibly through impeachment if he refuses to uh, resign on his own. This is such an interesting case, and it's, and it's such a sad case because it's obvious he was just trying to save his own skin because they're right. Like somebody gets hurt, you would think there would be moaning or some sort of sounds coming from the side of the ditch. Um, so, so getting back to what you were just saying, why is the AG subject to impeachment? Can other law enforcement officers be impeached as well? So the attorney general is a part of the executive branch. And if you think back to your high school civics course, not very long ago for you, Erica, um, just a couple of years, I believe, uh, there are three branches to the government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch. And the attorney general is part of the executive branch. Now, the legislative and judicial have the obligation to keep the executive branch in check. And checks and balances that are fundamental to our American democracy uh, are very similar at the state levels, meaning in this case, the legislative branch, just like Congress, can impeach a president. Uh, The General Assembly of the state of South Dakota can investigate, impeach, or censure him as it sees fit. Now, he is facing substantial pressure to resign as on a fundamental level, it is, uh, it, it's not good optics to have the state's highest law enforcement officer accused of multiple cl- crimes, uh, being responsible for the death of an innocent bystander, uh, and, and possibly involved in a wide-ranging cover-up conspiracy. Yeah, no, I imagine it. it isn't good optics uh, to have all of that happening. I mean, and, and the fact of the matter is he had a, a really bad night and he helped somebody else have a really bad night and they died. And, and now he's just trying to do a cover up. And, and that's why the delays happen when they're trying to cover something up. So when you were talking about how, oh, it wasn't even, it was another 24 hours before the victim's family was even uh, you know, advised of, of the problems and, and, and of his death. I mean, it's, it's infuriating. It is enraging and, and yet another example of how law enforcement is uh, a class unto itself, holding itself above the law and all of the people upon whom it imposes the law. Thank you so much for letting us know about this. And I do hope that further investigations will happen and that the victim's family will get restitution of some sort for the situation. We will certainly stay abreast of the developments in this case and the very similar case of a Marion County judge charged with an eerily similar crime, uh, uh, leaving the County Republican Party meeting, uh, alcohol potentially involved, uh, individual being struck by a car and 
uh, severe harm as the result of it. So we will, we will keep abreast of both of these cases and how they turn out in the future. But for now, let's turn to segment two and our discussion of protection orders. Now, civil protection orders are a tool that was created by the legislature, specifically uh, Congress, back when they uh, passed the Violence Against Women's Act. And they have become more and more uh, available to the citizenry and used more and more frequently, both by private citizens and prosecutors, to use the court's power to put individuals in a status of being held to a set of conditions that no other law or law enforcement officer can put on them. In this case, forbidding them from having contact with an individual or a location. Protection orders are designed to help an alleged victim by creating a buffer, which if penetrated by the accused will result in criminal charges. Protection orders are standard in domestic violence and sexual misconduct cases, but there are a variety of types of protection orders. And it's important to know which one is at play in your particular situation. So Erica, let's have part one of our discussion about protection orders, what they are and what the different types of protection orders are out there. Well, I'm really interested in hearing about this because I, I had a situation in my own family where there was a family member that, you know, really just kept wanting to take over all of the money <laughs> for the, the elders of the family. So they would get um, protection orders against all the other sisters and brothers and kind of a situation where they um, kept my Nana away from everybody. And it was just, it was a really sad situation. And so I, I really don't know how she was able to do that for so long, but um, I can't wait to hear about this. So what are the different types of protection orders? Well, Erica, what you're probably experiencing is either a domestic violence civil protection order or possibly a civil stalking protection order. Uh, those are the sorts of, of weapons that uh, citizens can use against one another in order to gain advantage in, in these sorts of situations. Now, a domestic violence civil protection order or a domestic violence juvenile civil protection order can be issued when one citizen accuses another of domestic violence, um, you know, child abuse, sexually oriented offenses. Um, and it, it has to be issued or it can only be issued, I guess is more accurate against a family or household member. So somebody that's related by one degree of blood or somebody that lives in your house. Now, uh, homosexual partners can have these issued against one another. Brother and sister can have these issued against one another. Even roommates and have these issued against one another because they are household members. Now, a juvenile civil protection order can be issued and sought out by a parent against uh, another juvenile on behalf of their underage child. And that can be obtained by making allegations of assault, um, making threats, what Ohio calls menacing, stalking behavior, um, and other sexually oriented offenses. Now, 
the, the domestic violence civil protection order can last for up to five years. But if we're talking about a juvenile being the target or the respondent, the, the uh, limited person up until that person's 19th birthday. So it can last much longer than five years, actually. The other available um, citizen on citizen civil protection order is the civil stalking or the civil sexually oriented offense protection order. And that has more limited um, reasons to request it. Um, it. It is limited to incidents of stalking, incidents of uh, sexually oriented offenses. However, it can be issued between any two citizens. There doesn't have to be any relation between the two citizens. And it can be issued for up to five years. And all of these protection orders, these citizen on citizen protection orders can be renewed every five years in perpetuity. Now, a domestic violence temporary protection order or a criminal protection order issues as the result of criminal charges having been filed, anything from domestic violence to assault, sexual assault, um, any sort of interpersonal crime like that uh, can, can almost always be grounds for issuing a protection order, either um, as a condition of bond or as a separate protection order issued by the court as part of the criminal case. It does not matter uh, for the criminal protection order, the domestic violence temporary protection order requires uh, the parties to be family or household members. Uh, but the criminal protection order does not need to have that familial relationship to issue. Now, those last only so long as the criminal case is pending or a civil protection order is issued. So a little bit different duration. All of these protection orders carry with them the potential for new criminal charges for violating a protection order. And like domestic violence, assault, um, the violation of a protection order, even the mere allegation of it can force the police's hand to go out and arrest the respondents and haul them to jail until a bond hearing can be held. So very serious consequences for what is deemed to be a, a civil proceeding. The different types of protection orders, a, a problem popped into my mind when you were really being distinctive about whether you lived with someone or not. Because I can imagine that if you live with someone and then there's a protective order, that, that would cause some problems. I mean, do you have to move out? What is the difference between living with someone and having a protective order and not? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's why these, um, these, sorts, of these sorts of protection orders are frequently abused in custody situations and when couples are breaking up. Um, because you don't need a criminal charge to support the, the request for the protection order. Literally, all you have to do is go down to the courthouse, fill out some paper, stand in front of a judge, make an accusation, and uh, your, your live-in boyfriend or your ex-wife or your soon-to-be ex-wife uh, will be escorted out of your home and prohibited from coming back uh, by law enforcement. Um, so yeah, very much subject to abuse and, and in my experience, frequently abused for these purposes. Now, the distinction between uh, the, the protection orders has to do with um, 
who can who can live in the house um, and orders that will so let me back up three two one so the distinction between the types of protection orders those being um, you know, the domestic violence protection order and more specifically the civil stalking protection order has to do with uh, you know, kind of a variety of collateral consequences that get dropped on the head of the respondent when that ex parte order is issued so in, in a domestic violence protection order, the court very well may order the respondent to keep paying the rent or the mortgage, keep paying the utilities, um, prevents them from removing personal property from the home or household pets. So these kinds of restrictions are not really relevant to cases that don't involve people who live together. So those, position, those petitions are different in that regard as far as the scope of what can be uh, imposed upon the respondent. Now that family or household member is really key to this distinction because uh, people that live in, in that very close interpersonal dynamic do deserve a heightened level of protection um, than you know, just two random people from the street. So I have another question. <laughs> that was very interesting. Um, if somebody's taking out a protection order against you, does there have to actually be a crime or can somebody just take a protection order out on a whim? Yeah, so on on all of these protection orders, so on, on the domestic violence civil protection order, the juvenile civil protection order and the civil stalking sexually oriented defense protection order, there does not have to be any criminal uh, charges issued to uh, obtain one of these protection orders. Uh, it is merely the word of the accuser going in and so long as it is sufficiently convincing to the judge um, will cause the protection order to be issued on an ex parte basis. And we'll be talking next week about what a full hearing um, on a civil protection order is all about. But yes, that is that is the beginning and the end of it, Erica. You go in, you make the allegation, and uh, you know if, if that person is living with you, they will be hauled out of their home by the police. Good luck finding a motel for the night. Well, I mean, it, and, and the other reason that it comes to mind is because I, I work with family attorneys sometimes, and one of the strategies to getting custody of their children sometimes is unfortunately to falsely accuse someone of anything, lots of horrible things. And the person is just pulled out of the house and then they no longer live there. And then it's now they're in there for a criminal charge in addition to just trying to go through a divorce. So, I mean, I'm not sure. Do you see that very often where it's kind of a, a strategy in, in some other situation and it really has nothing to do with what's really going on? Constantly. We see it all the time. Um, used, as, as you said, Erica, it, it primarily in custody situations. We also see it frequently in situations where um, you know, one member of a of a romantic couple is is hurt for some reason. You know, they somebody cheated on somebody else, and the you know the the person that's left out of the affair gets mad, and so they run down to the courthouse and and make these sorts of accusations. I mean, and that's that's really sad. I mean, it's it's terrible to get hurt, 
that's what happens sometimes, but you should not falsely accuse somebody and ruin their life as we've spoken about in the past for potentially for the rest of their life. It's, it's a horrible situation for them work-wise, family-wise, you know, socially, some people, all it takes is to be accused and they don't care that later on that you get found innocent. So, I mean, that's really, really sad. Can you get an attorney if something like this happens? Yes. So the, the respondent has, uh, has the right to be represented by counsel, but because, as I said, Erica, this is a civil matter. There's no constitutional right to, to uh, an, an entitlement to an attorney. So for protection orders, um, you have to go out and hire your own lawyer. You have to pay for that lawyer on your own. And these cases can get expensive. For the protection orders that require criminal charges, so you know the domestic violence temporary protection order that only lasts for the duration of that criminal case, or for the criminal protection order that, again, only lasts for the duration of that case, there is an attorney appointed if necessary for the criminal charges. And typically that attorney will handle the criminal protection order aspect of the case as well. Uh, Folks are often surprised that they are not um, entitled to a court appointed attorney in this realm. And even more so when they find out that the petitioner in most counties can get a free lawyer. Um, you know, a lawyer that is paid for by the local prosecutor's office uh, or the state attorney general's office or some other uh, nonprofit organization that funds uh, the prosecution of these protection orders. Um, and, and, you know, even more so, it's shocking that, that people are not entitled to a court appointed or a free lawyer in these situations. Um, when you find out that the consequences for violating these orders is immediate arrest, um, long-term jail time. Um, a second violation is a felony. Um, you, know, a third violation can result in mandatory prison time. You know, and obviously all the collateral consequences of any um, any regular conviction, uh, loss of employment, loss of your Second Amendment gun rights, and a variety of other inhibitions on the accused's freedoms. Um, you know, if, if you have had a protection order filed against you, you must consult an attorney uh, to see what your options are immediately. These things move very quickly. Frequently, the time frame between the ex parte order and the full hearing can be a matter of days. It's not, we're not talking about weeks here. As soon as that ex parte order is served on the respondent, the court's going to have a, a full hearing set quite quickly. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. And it's so important. I mean, we just, recently spoke about this, that if there's even a hint of an accusation and there's no protection order yet, there's, you know, nothing in the mail, it doesn't matter. If you think something like this is going to happen, you should contact an attorney right away, just so that you know what your options are and that you can get ahead of a, a really bad situation and hopefully mitigate a lot of the damage that could happen. Absolutely. 
Erica, thank you for engaging in this discussion with me. Everybody out there who listened, thank you for taking the time to listen to our show and to become informed about how uh, law enforcement and government officials are dodging their responsibility and covering up their crimes. For more information about how you, the citizen, uh, can hold police and the government accountable, and for everything that you need to know about civil protection orders and criminal protection orders, check out the law office of BrianJones.com and look at our social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at T-L-O-B-J. We'll be, ne- we'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as part two of our look at protection orders in the state of Ohio a look at the constitutionality of that ex parte hearing and orders and the standard of evidence that is required at the full hearing to issue a civil protection order. If you have any questions about today's topics or any topics that you would like to see discussed on the Sui Generous show in the future, make sure you comment or send us a direct message. We'll be happy to add your questions to our podcast and make sure we give you a shout out if you want that too. Erica, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, when I part ways with my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.